Trash genre cast where people gather around a table and talk about films that will not be found in a film studies course syllabus. This week's film is not a film, it is rather three films. It is the Spider Man trilogy. And uh, there, there's no jokey title for the Spider-Man trilogy because it's, you know, it's them three movies. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man Sp- trilogy. S- Sam, yes, Sam Raimi. Name above the titles. Like, yes. Uh, well, how- in, f- in fairness, there has only been the one Spider-Man trilogy so far. So, that, yeah, I, I guess the preface is good because Raimi's all over these movies. And we'll, yeah. we'll talk about it. Lot, lots and lots of Raimi. So we're talking about that. But let's go ahead and identify these disembodied voices speaking to your brain so that you know who we are. Uh, who are you across uh, the table from me, sir? I am Arthur Gordon, and I will not die a monster. That's very, very true, because you are very sweet uh, and also handsome. Uh, Sir, who are you to my right? My name is Dalton Stewart, and Bonesaw is ready. And yes, Peter Parker, my husband did make this outfit for me, ya dick. (laughs) <laughs> very, very good. <laughs> so weird that these movies came out long enough that you could have your superhero just casually toss out homophobia and nobody yeah. gave a shit. Yeah, it's a different, God damn. Different, a different uh, world. Watching these movies, all three of them, you're just like, oh, wow. Is Twitter would have ate this alive today. It was today. a different time. Yeah. Ugh. Yep. Pre-Twitter. It was better days some kind, of, kind of. Sometimes. Look, I think it's good to have Twitter around to call out uh, when your, your movie does some dunce, dumb stuff like that. It's good that Twitter wasn't around for the jazz dance because Twitter. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet Twitter would have been wrong about that. Ate it yeah. alive. It would have been wrong. It would have been bad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my name is Dustin Sells, and I wouldn't want to fight me neither. And uh, <laughs> here we go. We're gonna do this. Wait, wait, wait. So I, I'm thinking you're Peter Parker and you're Topher Gray. I mean, you're you're Venom. Oh, fuck you're Eddie you. Brock, right? Man. I hate that. I, I, I'm Otto Octavius. You're, you're out of, I don't want to be Topher Grace. Not in these movies. No, no. I, no, I don't know who Dalton would be. I, I have to think on that a minute. Harry? Gwen Stacy? Yeah, I Gwen. would rather be Gwen Stacy th- than I, I literally think, anyone you've mentioned so far. I, I think you'd be Gwen Stacy. I'm yeah. fine with that. I can just yeah. picture you doing a uh, model shoot up on the 20th I, floor. <laughs> I, I would do a photo shoot to sell some copiers. <laughs> Anybody wants, uh, wants to pay me some money to stand around and look pretty, I will do it. Yeah, I'm all in for that. So, uh, well, there you go, dear listener. That's who we are. Now, this is what's going to happen. We are going to do not a review show, but rather an analysis show, which means that we will spoil the entirety of the trilogy. Based on the box office receipts from these films, I can safely assume you've probably seen them, listener. And if you have not, um, you will be given a brief reprieve from Spoiler Ridge, however. So we will have a synopsis, um, which ought to be interesting, from the voice of the cinema. And then we'll have a uh, thumbs up, thumbs uh, down set of reviews, which will be spoiler free. And then we'll move on into um, a game, which might involve uh, mild spoilers of this film or films in its orbit. So there you go. Th- this week, it most certainly will. Yeah, and so th- be warned on that. But then all spoiler bets are off once we get down to business, which is, as always, analysis. So, you've been warned. Without any further ado, then, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of that there cinema, let's hear um, that synopsis, those synopses, please. After nerdy Peter Parker is bitten by a radioactive spider, he develops superpowers resembling a spider. Over the course of three films, he must figure out how to balance being a superhero, a friend, and a nephew. You know what, Arthur? You just killed it. You did it. You did great, buddy. Uh, No help from IMDb this week. That was off the dome. Yeah. I like what happened. The Mysterio Dome. (laughs) God, I hope we get Jake Gyllenhaal in that movie. I am so hyped for Mysterio. Uh, It's funny that we're talking about these movies, uh, and then after we'd made that decision, this announcement came out that uh, Gyllenhaal was in early talks to uh, be Mysterio, because, if you might not remember, listener, Jake Gyllenhaal almost replaced Tobey Maguire uh, in Spider-Man 2. Yeah, there so. were some contract disputes or some some tomfoolery behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's fun that he... It's full he, circle. It, yeah, it's exactly full circle because he is now too old to play Spider-Man. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, by a lot. Yeah. By, by, yeah, a hot minute. So, Honestly, Tobey Maguire was too old to play Spider-Man. Yep. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know who else was too old to play Spider-Man? Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's that. what they got wrong. Every single time, you got to go as young as you possibly can for this yeah. character. It's very, very true. So let's go ahead and do those quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews of the trilogy in Toto. So I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you in terms of your thumbs up, thumbs down review of the entire Sam Raimi trilogy of Spider-Man? Well, so I, I was decidedly the target audience for these films. Uh, I was 11. Yeah. Uh, 02 and then summer. So, yeah, I'd have been 11, 12, and 16, respectively, when each of the... Or wait, not 12. 13. Yeah. 11, 13, and 16 when each of these three films was released. So, yeah, I was definitely the target demo for, for all of these films. Dustin shaking his head because he uh, already had, was, what, graduated from college at that point? Uh, yeah, I just graduated, yeah. He was yeah. draft eligible. Yeah. He had a kid I, by I, the time. I've been draft one. eligible for three years. Hey, none of us are draft <laughs> eligible anymore. Isn't that fun? Uh, it, it's very nice. Yep. Uh, so anyway, uh, by, what, by the time the third one came out, how many kids did you have? A 2000, summer 2007. I'd had both of them. Okay. So, wow. You well, definitely no, I, I, Yeah, I'd, I had both of them by then, yeah. Well, you're the target audience, too. They wanted you to take your kids so they could have your money. They're a little small. They would, one was wearing diapers and not, you know. It doesn't matter. I don't think Sony cares. Had yet to enter there were the, toys. Had they had were for kids. Had yet to enter the mirror stage. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, I was definitely um, targeted for these movies, and I, I went for them. A whole hat. Uh, Spider-Man 1 was the first DVD that I ever purchased with my own money, the money that I made mowing my father's lawn, and I hotly uh, and readily threw my money uh, to, to get that DVD. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was a big fan of these movies coming out. Uh, I even was somewhat of a defender of 3 when it came out. Uh, I, I recognized that it was not bad or was not good, and I didn't understand why, but I still liked things about it. Uh, but it was fun to be part of these films coming out and grow with them and become more of a film fan throughout the release of these three films. And by the time it got to the third one, having enough of a critical eye to be like, wait a second, hold on, that wasn't very good. Uh, and now it's been fun to revisit them and realize uh, none of them are that good. Uh, some of them are better than others. Uh, I, I personally think two uh, holds its ground. I think it really is one of the better superhero movies that's ever been released, and um, I think we'll probably talk more about that in analysis and in the in our gameplay. What is so good about two? Uh, but I, I really was surprised how well two has aged because the first one has not aged very well, and I was kind of disappointed by that because again. This is a film that I loved very dearly when it came out. And uh, I think a lot of things still work. I think um, Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, uh, their chemistry really does carry a lot of these films. And that's something that uh, the MCU uh, films have had a hard time with, is having uh, heroes and love interests uh, whose chemistry can carry films. Uh, and I think that's why the MCU has started to kind of askew um, love and sex kind of whole hat in their films. Uh, because they've realized, yeah, it doesn't really work in superhero movies. Uh, and honestly, it doesn't. Uh, the melodrama that makes comic books so exciting doesn't really carry over to film very well because you only have, you know, two and a half hours max uh, to tell these stories. And finding the time to actually develop a love interest within that runtime takes a lot away from the other busy work that super, superhero movies have to do. Well, they tend to rest on will they or won't they. Exactly. And that's just, yeah, that that's you just need serial production for that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I think a big part of this going in was uh, Sony knew that they were going to make probably at least two movies. And they even, uh, based on the uh, pre-sale receipts alone, they greenlit the third one before uh, the second movie even came out. So this is firmly kind of setting the stage for how we know superhero movie production at this point. Uh, I mean, yeah, Batman was a guaranteed hit uh, when it came out in 89, uh, but they hadn't greenlit any sequels until after they found out that they made money. Uh, sequels were greenlit right on top of each other, uh, right on top of the pre preceding uh, film with this, and obviously that's that's how it's done now. You don't make a superhero movie unless you're sure that you're going to make enough money to make another one. Um, so it's kind of interesting where this sits in the history of the superhero genre, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, overall, I, the, the films are charming. Uh, there's a lot of heart here. I think you can tell that Sam Raimi is invested in these films. Um, even in the moments that don't work, you can see that there is passion and I think the less passion there is, the more the films suffer for it, as we'll talk about when we get to talking about 
uh, analysis with number three, which look, I'm, I'm going to, I'm here to say, uh, emo Peter is great. He's fantastic. It's hilarious. And it is exactly what, uh, that character would think is cool. And that is why it works. And, uh, anybody who, who thinks that that movie is bad because of the jazz dance is wrong. It's bad because it's got too many subplots. Uh, and I think that's part of what makes the first two movies work is there's very few subplots. Uh, they're pretty cleanly plotted films. Um, I think the first movie has a problem that a lot of early superhero movies has is it feels the need to explain how superheroes work to the audience. Uh, they have to explain costumes and powers and backstories. And I think as we've made more of these films, um, I, I think the the powers that be that create these products have realized, no, audiences are, are, are willing to just buy into worlds where superheroes exist. And we don't need to explain every single thing. Um, uh, especially the, the aspect of every one of these movies has to have an origin for the villain, uh, which, again, now that we've gotten further out, very few of them do. I mean, Spider-Man Homecoming has some very light origin stuff. Um, and, again, we're probably going to talk a lot about the other Spider-Man films that exist uh, to, today, I imagine. At least Arthur probably will have I reckon it. y'all will. Yeah, well, Arthur's seen the <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man films. I have not. I know you haven't. I saw uh, the first one. I saw the Lizard Man one. Uh, okay. See, I haven't even... Yeah, I, I didn't see either of the uh, the Amazings. Uh, I had no interest, honestly. Um, but I think I'll probably name-check Homecoming a lot just because I think all of the things that don't work about these three films are the things that work in Spider-Man yeah. 3, or in Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, overall, I, I'm soft on this trilogy. I think it's perfectly fine. I, I think it's nice. I think if you did teach a film studies course about uh, superhero films as a genre, you probably would have to talk about these three films, but it's literally the only reason you would bother to talk about any of them, whereas you probably could see yourself invoking, you know, if you were building the syllabus for a, uh, a course on, you know, post-9-11 uh, action films, you'd probably talk about The Dark Knight. That probably would come up in a film studies course. But unless it was a, a genre-specific type thing, no, the, the, the Spider-Man trilogy is not going to come up. Uh, yeah, so. th that trailer reshoot would just be a lecture point, and you wouldn't watch the film, I think. No, in, absolutely In, in that particular curriculum. Yeah, no. Um, they, they are fascinating and baffling and frustrating films all the way through and i think the only one that works without reservations is spider-man 2 and it was it, it's interesting to go back and revisit these films especially the second one which has been heralded as one of the greatest superhero movies ever made for a very long time and uh it was cool to see the, the praise for that movie held up um it was interesting to see that three has aged a lot better than i got credit for and it was disappointing to see that the first movie doesn't really work as well as it once did. And uh, I think in large part that has to do with um, studios and writers and directors not really knowing how to make superhero movies uh, just yet. The, the nut had yet to be cracked. Um, and that's why I think you see so much of Tim Burton's uh, first two Batman movies in that first Spider-Man movie because it was the only formula people knew for a fact would work, uh, which is kind of interesting. So uh, that's probably enough for now. We'll have much more to talk about later. That's kind of where I'm sitting. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, Dalton Stewart is soft on the Spider-Man trilogy. Um, Arthur Gordon, are you hard on the Spider-Man trilogy? I knew and, you were going to do that. And I, tell us why or why not. I, I think I like How hard are you? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, on a scale of Norman Osborn's flying hoverboard to Dr. Octo Octavius's uh, <laughs> tentacle arms. Um, I, I think I land a lot where uh, Dalton does. Um, two is, I think, the most cohesive, strongest of this unit. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the whole film has charm. Oh, the whole trilogy has charms. I think all three films do have a lot of heart, uh, which I think is key. One of the things I think Sam Raimi really excels at and one of the strengths of these films is the character development that is built throughout the films. Peter Parker... Uh, Mary Jane Watson, Harry Osborn, you know, we kind of get to see them grow and change and evolve at least, well, at least, you know, Peter Parker and Harry to some extent. Uh, Mary Jane kind of does, kind of doesn't. Uh, she, she, they have an interesting relationship and I like it. I, I, I like the way that relationship is played throughout it, the film. It actually feels realized yeah. in, in ways that you don't normally get from this kind of movie. Yeah. You know, comparison to something like Thor and uh, Jane or something like that. Or... I, I would even say something like uh, the Iron Man films, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Because those are, that's probably the only modern superhero film where the love interest has stayed around. There's a consistent and, arc. Yeah, and yeah. the films have continually tried to advance the arc. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's never been a key moment to, you know, who Iron exactly. Man is. It's always been a kind of tertiary yeah. plot, whereas... Mary Jane is huge You're for absolutely right. 
Uh, yeah. she, she's the focus of literal. Here's the thing that does kind of suck when you watch all three back to back. Literally every movie ends with her being a damsel in distress. Yeah. Literally yes. every single yeah. one. Every single one. She is core to what Spider-Man is. And they really, they, you know, they play with some ideas on that bridge in the first movie where you you wonder what they're going to do with it because, you know, you know the history of the comics and you know, Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane and how the relationship ends or whatever, you know. So you, you will kind of wonder if they're going to play with that that idea there with the Green Goblin. Um, the first movie, though, to me, it, it's a mixed bag. It's really two movies. And there's a real hard shift about halfway through. Um, and it, it's bizarre because, like, time has seemed to advance after they've graduated. And it's a really weird, hard shift that doesn't work for me. There is a temporal, yeah, like, gap. Yeah. Well, and the, every once in a while, they will name check, or uh, not name check, they, they'll make reference to how long it has been since certain things have occurred. Yeah. They say in Spider-Man 3, it's only been two years since he became Spider-Man. And that's absurd. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely Ridiculous. absurd. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the first movie just... There's a lot of heart. There's some great character moments, um, but it structurally doesn't work as well. I think, too, it's just so cohesive. Uh, we get a great villain. Uh, Alfred Molina is wonderful as Otto Octavius. Uh, there's so much heart and emotion in that performance and what he does and how he brings that to the, s- the screen. And, and what I love about these villains, you know, especially Norman Osborn and Otto Octavius, is the tragic element to both of them. You know, neither of these guys are set out to be villains. They just – they're under pressure – you know, Norman is trying to meet his deadlines. He's about to lose all of his funding and things like this. And then, you know, he's just trying to succeed. Yeah, he's he's not portrayed as particularly villainous until he becomes a Green Goblin. Yeah. I mean, he seems like he's kind of a rough dad, but he's yeah. not ever portrayed to be a monster yeah. uh, until the the change. Yeah, and, and I love the way that Willem Dafoe plays it. I think he does a wonderful job. He gets to do a kind of crazy thing. Uh, he gets to do the voices. He's having such a good time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's great. He's great casting as, as Norman Osborn. And Otto's... Alfred Molina brings so much pathos to that role. And we get this the, that wonderful moment where they're all having dinner with Peter and his wife and him, and they're having dinner. And we really get to kind of see uh, who Otto is, you know, outside of the, the lab. And I think that's important. And it's those small moments throughout the whole franchise or the trilogy where I think these movies succeed because we get that character development. And it's in the little moments. Um, and three, I think, is just wacky fun. Um, you're right. There's way... <laughs> There's about eight subplots too many. We There's the an Sandman. amnesia subplot. And just, uh, yeah, we get the amnesia. We've got Gwen Stacy. We've got the Sandman. We've got Eddie Brock, and we've got well. This all is of what happens stuff. when you have an eight-armed screenwriter. <laughs> 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 yes, uh, Stephen Arachnid uh, did some terrible work here on Spider-Man Three. Um, gosh, what are we doing? Um, lots of puns. Just a lot of let's, a lot call, of let's call it a day. Yeah, let's just go home. Was that twenty minutes? Yeah, we're, we're good. done. I, I just, See you next week, dear I, listener. I, I when we do the love, it's <laughs> by Catherine Bigelow. I, I didn't mean to shut us down. <laughs> you're absolutely right, though, Arthur. Um, yeah, I, I mean, thank you for saying I'm right, but you're yeah. you're right too. I mean, you you were the first one to mention it uh, in our yeah. group chat. You're like, this is why it doesn't work. There's just yeah. too much going on. And and, yeah. and you can tell that Raimi's focus is really on Peter Parker and Mary Jane. I mean. We get a scene of the Sandman, and then 30 minutes later, oh, oh yeah, we've got Eddie Brock here, too. And then 30 minutes later, oh, yeah, don't forget about the Sandman. Like, they're just there to fill in some gaps in the story, and it doesn't work. Um, but there's a lot of fun there. I think that the tone fits with what Raimi's been doing the entire time. I mentioned this in our in our group chat was this feels like a comic book put on screen. It's not an adaptation yes. of let's take the story and put it on screen. It is let's take these panels and this tone and this melodrama, as you mentioned, and put it on screen. And it's totally different kind of than anything we've seen. You know, it's drawing from Burton's Batman, but it also feels like an actual comic book movie, which is kind of not what we've seen before or after. Yeah, I think as as superhero movies continue to be made, I think screenwriters and directors uh, have uh, – and studios, obviously. The studio involvement is a big part of how these movies work. Uh, and I think that's been why the MCU has consistently worked is Kevin Feige, I think, realized – that, uh, no, you have to have a producer kind of overseeing all of these things yeah. because it's too much to ask. It's yeah. too much to ask for a director to chart out this this many movies at once. Yeah. It's just not fair. Uh, and I, I think that's why they've worked. But you're right, Arthur, that Raimi does kind of have a cohesive vision here where he says, no, we're going to try to make these as comic booky as possible. I think in three is the times that it doesn't work because th- there's so much going on that he has a much harder time balancing the tone that he's navigated so seamlessly yeah. in the other two films. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, I, I think it's an interesting, I think definitely it's an interesting trilogy. We can't talk about a comic book cycle post Superman 
uh, you know, pre-MCU without talking about Spider-Man because, you know, Blade, X-Men, and Spider-Man showed Hollywood there was a market for this. And that's a very key part of the history of these films, you know, the MCU and all that stuff. If you want to go back to the roots, you have to look at this film. You have to look at those other two movies as well. Um, and so I think it's a very interesting piece of history. I think it has a lot of heart, but I'm, I'm like you. I'm pretty soft on the trilogy as a whole. Um, so that's where I'm at. Dustin, you said you'd seen the original. You hadn't seen either of these sequels. Where do you stand on Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy? I, I like them. I think they're fun. Um, I do think uh, their comic bookiness, uh, their sort of silliness, is endearing, and, and it sort of brings a certain level of charm to them. I mean, especially after, you know, the from Dark Knight through to about 2012, 2013, those years of dark superhero movies that we had to go through. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. The, there is a, a certain charm to them in hindsight, right? Yeah, and so the, that brightly coloredness uh, it, it is a lot of fun. And the, and the fact that they are just sort of silly um, is good. And, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, opposed to all that. I do think the second film, as you guys have said, is the strongest um, I only watched the 2.1, so I haven't actually seen the theatrical cut. Oh, you, I, you went ahead and watched that beefy cut. Yeah, because I hadn't seen it two or three at all. And so I just went, well, if I'm going to watch them, I'll watch it all. And Fair so, enough. Yeah. You didn't watch the editor's cut of three? I There's an editor's cut yeah. of three. Here's the thing. It just came out like a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah, the editor's cut just dropped. Uh, Sony realized I could make a little bit of money with Homecoming coming out. So the summer that Homecoming came out, they dropped that Ultimate Spider-Man Trilogy collection, which huh. included that editor's cut, uh-huh. which apparently uh, there's no – it's actually shorter. It's not a – Yeah, I noticed. It's just a using they, – they use some alternate takes. They rearrange a couple of things. Okay. Uh, and I've heard that it actually is a little bit more cohesive just by rearranging a couple of events, that, yeah, which is yeah, that interesting. taking some of them out would help, but yeah. which is sort of a mess. But you know what's interesting about uh, the third installment is that it feels like – it feels like a crossover. Uh, it feels like spectacular, amazing, uh, and I think just Spider-Man. Are those the three Spider-Man titles? Uh, yeah, there's. I mean, there's been several that have rotated oh, out throughout the years. But yeah, yeah, but my, my nerd credentials just went away. But you're right. But it, it, it's jam-packed the way uh, Avengers: Infinity War is. Yeah. The problem is they hadn't quite figured out how to make a movie right. that brimming with characters yet and and so it does feel like you know this is going on but also this is going on so we've got this sort of sandman storyline it's also going on with this venom storyline which is also going on with this you know love triangle you know of peter mary's mary jane episode you know with the heart-shaped spider face and all of that kind of you know it's it feels like it's all that stuff going on with a giant size spider-man sort of overlaid on top of all of it and uh and so as, as a comic book fan you go okay messy but yeah you know it's fine uh, and that each individual, but you don't have the you know sort of discrete cohesive sets uh, with which to connect those dots, and so that's where it doesn't have that sort of serialization that really would have helped. I, I think the third installment as a television series, a thirteen episode television series, probably could flesh totally, it out. Totally could have been done. Yeah, you know, I mean, longer or much shorter, one or the other. One of the things, speaking of that, one of the things I really because I I battled with this in my head about the first film in that. The way it's structured, and it—I don't know if it was intentional to set it up almost as episodic, like a comic book. You know, here's episode one, here's episode two, here's episode three, um, or if it was just a—and I think maybe it just translated poorly, or if it was just a poor shift in the narrative, uh, the way it's structured in one. Because that was the thing I was kind of go back and forth in my head. One was, you know, is this—is he trying to do, you know, bringing the comic book to the screen? Mm-hmm. You know, these stories are stretched out over, you know, two, four, five, eight issues, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of wondering that in hindsight, with the way that first film is plotted and set up, if he was doing something like that, where he's got this is the, you know, this is issue one, this is issue two, issue three within this story of it, Spider-Man. It does sort of have that feel to it. So I, I don't, I mean, I'd be, I'd be curious to know what the screenwriter would say. You know, um, and I forget which ones uh, Ramey actually wrote. We'll have he to, wrote the last one. I know um, him and his brother wrote that. With uh, they had somebody come in and do some rewrites of their draft. But mm-hmm. uh, as we're talking, I'll make sure we get that pulled up so we can discuss what Ramey did and didn't write. But overall, it, it works just fine. You know, uh, the melodrama stuff is silly. Um, I don't like the use or disuse or underuse of uh, Kirsten Dunst. Uh, but and I, I really like James Franco. Uh, I especially like Amnesia Franco. I'm I'm the biggest fan of Amnesia Franco. Making omelets, uh, yep, just yeah, just flipping omelets. Make, making omelets. <laughs> so, since we have been talking about it a lot lately, though, this is a good time to mention that Franco is potentially a gross person, and you yes. probably should not ever ever hang out with him. Yeah, uh, which is disappointing because I yeah I like Franco as a performer. I like him in these movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't like him as a real person. Apparently, he's which a bit is of a creep. Yeah, yeah, well, and when he's doing... uh, a bit of a creep, uh, I would say he's a huge creep. 
considering yeah. he allegedly took his dick out in the back of a limo and uh Anyway, we don't need to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. This Another day. Good, yeah, we, that's, that's all very, very bad. No, it's all incredibly bad, yeah. and uh, definitely colored watching these movies for me a little bit. Um, I did hate him better. I did hate him more effectively yeah, when he's too. being bad guy. It made me less interested when he's his eating his pie. Yeah, <laughs> the revenge pie is so funny. It made me less interested in his redemption arc. Uh, again, much like we talked with Kevin Spacey when we talked about Baby Driver. It, Look, it can't not color your perception of a film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but you're right. The performance itself is interesting. It's pretty good, yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, I, and I do like when he puts on the charm. I think he does a good job of being the sort of nice friend. Like, oh, yeah, that's why we like this guy. This is why we're sad about him going so bad, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's that. That's a good thing, which is honestly a, a lot like my sort of personal arc and just my relationship with James Franco as an actor. Is like, oh yeah, I really like him. And it's, I'm very sad that he went so bad. Uh, so there, there's a lot of real life kind of uh, you know. Uh, dynamic working there with my viewing experience but yeah, overall i liked it um I, the danny elfman score does make it feel very batman-y um in bad ways and also yeah. some of the use of churches and gothic imagery and that kind of stuff I'm like yeah there is a way it would, it's very caught up in the the burton verse um and so but you know, whatever uh that being said i'm pretty okay with it uh, i'm not i'm not you know just just hard out churning this is amazing but i'm like okay yeah Oh, I'm not. I'm okay. I'd watch it. It's not again. an amazing Spider-Man. It's an all right Spider-Man. It's not, it's, it's, yeah. it's not spectacular. It, it, it's it's the very okay Spider-Man. Uh, by the way, uh, Raimi, uh, both Sam and Ivan, only worked on the screenplay for the for the, the third. Excuse me. Only worked on the screenplay for the third movie. There we go. That's ah. how we make words. Ah. Uh, David Kep is the sole credited screenwriter right. on the first one, and the second one has like four screenwriters, none of which I'm going to bother to read just because it's a long list. Fair well, enough. They did a very good job on the second one. They did. Yeah, so, great script. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Um, those are our biases. We are pro, but not hard pro. We're just like, yeah, okay, pro. Uh, so there you go. Uh, with the Spider-Man trilogy and our thoughts, we'd like for you to participate in this conversation via social media. And Dalton's going to tell you where all of those things can be found. I certainly will. Uh, we don't have a uh, any retractions to make this week, unlike J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, but if you do want to let us know that we should make a retraction, you can do that. Uh, our, our email address is goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to stay up to date with what we're doing daily, weekly, uh, that's going to be Twitter, at good underscore trash, the home for all things Good Trash Media, not just this podcast, but also The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, uh, one of the, the, well, the currently the only other show on our network. But if you want to hear all those other shows we've made in the past, you can go on over to goodtrashmedia.com. That is the home for all of our written content and the archives for all of the shows that we've ever made. Um, and, uh, yeah, you don't need to go to Facebook. That's fine. It exists. We're on there. You can probably find us. I don't use it. Frankly, you don't need to use the Twitter that much either. Uh, we've got some fun polls out there, and we'll always let you know as soon as the episodes are live uh, on Twitter. But, uh, look, just subscribe, rate, and review to the show on iTunes or Stitcher uh, Radio. Boom. You don't need to be on Twitter to find out when the episode's dropped. It's just going to show up in your podcast feed. How handy is that? And, yeah, while you're subscribing, that, that review and that rating will be a big help to us in terms of outreach. Speaking of outreach, the best thing you can do if you want this to be in more people's ears, if you don't want to be listening to this by yourself, Keithan or Brigham or uh, – those are the only two listeners that I, I know by on a first-name basis. I think it's the only two listeners we have. I don't think that's true. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while lately, though. Uh, but if you don't want to be listening to this by yourself, uh, tell your friends. Uh, lots of people like movies. Lots of people like podcasts. Uh, you know, share, share, share the love, share the joy. Uh, go out into the world and, and tell the people the good news. The, the good news being that sometimes these episodes are pretty good. Uh, last but certainly not least, this is a completely DIY uh, production. We don't have the help of any networks, well, other than the ones that we made. Uh, we don't have any celebrity guests, unless you count Nick Sanford, and I certainly don't. Uh, and he's, you know, one of my nearest and dearest friends. So, if you want to help us keep the lights on, uh, that's going to be Good Trash Media. I'm sorry, patreon.com forward slash GTM uh, to be part of the Good Trash Media Patreon. Uh, we have some fun bonus stuff for you in exchange for you giving us money. But, again, don't feel obligated. It's just uh, it's a little bit of help to uh, keep the lights on. Um, made possible this marathon, that's for sure. We went ahead and used uh, our Patreon receipts to uh, buy the Spider-Man trilogy uh, because that's not streaming anywhere. No. Sony's got that on lock. So, uh, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that you help make possible, listener, is, you know, making it so we don't have to spend our, our money. Because, uh, you know, we spend our money on uh, 
web hosting fees and shit. Right. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this, but I think I'm gonna. No, um, just just to tell you what what the next Patreon bonus is, dear listener. If you're curious as to whether or not this material is, oh yeah, about, tell them. You know, we, we we always do a monthly. This is what we're fired up in pop culture, and just sort of like a roundtable of us talking. We try about. to do a quarterly uh, Patreon exclusive review of some kind. Yeah, and so we're gonna do something we've never done: is a review of a miniseries in its entirety. We're gonna look at Steven Soderbergh's Mosaic, and there are uh, several possible ways in which you can get through the narrative of this via both the uh, the app slash web page, uh, web game almost. Uh, sort of, it's not quite choose your adventure, but it's sort of choose your narrative storyline. And also uh, the, the miniseries available for through HBO. And we're all three going to go through different experiences of this. One of us is going to go through the series. One of us is going to go through the entirety of the web, uh, making sure we check out all the different nodes of the story. And then one of us is just going to go the most economical route from beginning to end possible. And uh, that's going to be interesting and uh, a good conversation about narrative. And that's going to be a Patreon exclusive uh, here in June. So if you're thinking, hey, um, maybe I will subscribe to that and get on that uh, for that reason, uh, there, there might be an encouragement for you. So, yeah, if, you, if you're like Dustin and you absolutely love Steven Soderbergh and you're thinking, wow, I, I want to be part of that, now's a good time to get a Patreon. If you're like me and are constantly befuddled by Steven Soderbergh and cannot decide whether or not you like his work, then now's a good time because we're gonna break that uh, that mini series open. I, I look, I got a lot of respect for somebody who does weird experiments like this. Yeah. Whether it's his iPhone movie, mm-hmm. um, Unsane, whether it's uh, his completely um, off the rails hidden films that he does where he doesn't tell anybody about them. All these variety of experiments that Soderbergh likes to pull. Uh, I do find him interesting, and I, I think that'll make uh, our discussion of mosaic interesting. Where are you, where are you at on old Stevie? I'm I. I... I love the idea of Soderbergh. I haven't seen all his work, but I just love anybody who will look at a person and say, oh, you used to be a male dancer. Let's make a movie about that. Yeah, you could be a star. Yeah. Oh, you're an MMA fighter. Let's make a movie about that. Yeah, I, I, I think he's fascinating. And, you know, he's going to do, you know, Sex, Lies, Videotape. Oh, let's make Ocean's Eleven. I, I think he's just got such a fascinating filmography. I think he just picks... Interesting choices. Yeah. I, I, I think he's just got an interesting mind. I, I, I don't know that I love all of his films. You know, I'm not like diehard Soderbergh. I just love the idea that he's willing to experiment, take risks, try new things, and do something different. You're absolutely right. When you look at that filmography, you go, whoa, that's that's a weird career. Yeah. So, yeah, that, it'll be a fun uh, Patreon exclusive uh, coming Oh, soon. Yeah. And uh, and if you want to play along your home, you can because the app is free to download. So you can watch all that stuff for free without having to worry about getting HBO or anything like that. So if you want to play along and let us know how your adventure goes with it, let us know. Yeah. I think I'm going to fast track on the app. I think Dalton's hitting the HBO up and Dustin's going to go full bore. Full bore with the uh, with the app. Yeah. Uh, and, I may, and I may watch the series, too. I don't know. And the, Yeah, the app is – I think – the app, you know, there's you do the fast track. You start at a narrative thread and follow it through or whatever. But mm-hmm. you can also go through what Dustin was mentioning and watch all the videos. But then you can also explore all the investigation files. So it's a very in-depth process. Oh, it's a very real meta text type thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paratext, meta text. Yeah. They'll be interesting. So yeah. Fun. I think it'll be fun. I'm only going to watch the TV show. Yeah. And, uh, and if you're curious, you will. All, we all get the same basic story. But our viewing experience of it, you know, what we see, you know, the point of view that we see it from will change depending on how we go. This does sound like a fascinating experiment that uh, him and HBO did. And uh, I think our consumption of it will be a fun experiment. Yeah. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Enough talking about Patreon stuff. I think it's time to play the game. Talking uh, about our gameplay this week, which is our favorite moments of the Spider-Man trilogy. That's right. Favorite moments from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Brought to you by Patreon. (laughs) Dustin said he was uh, done talking about it, but I'm not. Thanks, Patreon donators, for (laughs) allowing us to buy the Spider-Man trilogy. Everything from this point on is going to be behind a paywall. Uh, If you want to hear our analysis of Spider-Man 3, uh, go over to Patreon. If you're listening to this right now and you haven't given us money, punch yourself in the leg really hard. Okay, now you can listen. I I think I speak for all of us uh, that the 
best thing about all of these films is the casting of J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Without a doubt. I mean, no we can just doubt. go ahead and say up top, <laughs> that is the moment of the movie. Uh, one of my favorite moments that didn't make my list is uh, when Peter first comes to give him pictures and he goes, crap, crap, mega crap. It's great. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's inspired Simmons, casting. Simmons is so... There is he's a, having a blast. There is definitely a Simmons moment in my top three. So. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Oh, for sure. Uh, when, uh, I think it's Harry... It's uh, $100 for the film. <laughs> Harold, Harold Ramey, I think, is his name. Uh, Sam Ramey's brother yeah. as the recurring... Uh, uh, oh, is that who that is? I don't know. I don't know what his job at the bugle he's is. He's just pitching ideas and getting just crap always on. Pitching yeah. ideas at Jameson, and he's just getting shot down. Yeah, it's yeah. so great. That's not a, not a very happy life. I, I do love the moment. Also, uh, that's Sam Raimi's daughter who <laughs> charges J. Joe Jameson a hundred dollars for an empty camera. That's great. <laughs> it, it, it is a brilliant moment. All right, well, there you go, dear listener. Now you sort of know how the game works. We're going to play it right now. Arthur, what is your first pick for favorite Spider-Man trilogy moments? Well, I've already referenced this point earlier in in the episode, so I'm not going to go too far into it. But it is that sequence of uh, Otto, Otto's wife, and Peter Parker having dinner uh, and just talking and just kind of talking about life and, you know, love and trying to, you know, Peter, do you have a girlfriend? You know, this whole thing and just... It's a very human moment, which I think is very important for Otto's development and where they go with that character and, and his transformation into Doc Ock. Um, and so I, I love it. And like I said earlier, this mo- those movies shine in the small moments. And this is just one example of that. And I just I, – I like Doc Ock a lot. I think he's a great character. You know, He's one of my favorites from the, the stories and the cartoon. Uh, and I think they do a great job of putting him on screen. I, I think he's probably – you know, in, in in since two thousand, you know, whatever. I think he may be one of the best villains uh, from a comic book story that we've gotten. Uh, I think he's just uh, wonderful, and so that that moment of humanizing him as a person, and he's not just a guy in a lab coat. He's a human being who's had aspirations and love and life, and you know, we see how he cares for his wife and things like that, and it makes what happens to him even more tragic. You know, a scene later. All right. Well, thank you for that very first pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What is your first selection for favorite Spider-Man trilogy moment? My favorite Spider-Man trilogy moment uh, up top, the the first one I'm going to mention is, in spite of everything you've done, they will hate you. Uh, this is where uh, the Green Goblin attacks the Daily Bugle, uh, knowing that Spider-Man will show up to try and save them, and poisons him and takes him to a roof and says, All right, buddy, here's the deal. Uh, I'm I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And if you keep messing with my shit, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to kill everybody you care about. Uh, and here's why that uh, you should just join me. Because it's not going to work. People don't like heroes. People like heroes for a little bit. Uh, and lo and behold, it does turn out he's right. Um, and again, within the, the narrative of the film, it's a fun moment. But I think within the context of Defoe's performance, it's great. It's, it's the moment where he gets to really play around the most. Uh, they actually go through the trouble of having a, a feature of letting his mask's eyes open so he can do a little bit more expressive acting. Uh, he gets to try on about three or four different voices throughout the course of talking to, to, to Spider-Man. Uh, and I think it really sets up what will work in a lot of uh, superhero movies going forward, including uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight. It is letting the hero uh, and the villain have a tete-a-tete to have a moment to talk about uh, this is why I think you're dumb, and this is why I think you're dumb. Uh, and yes, while that is kind of trite and cliche, it also is kind of important when you're talking about superhero narratives. If you were going to have superpowered characters hitting each other in the face, we need to know what they stand for and what their goals are and what their desires are and what those things are rooted in. Um, and I, I think it's a very economical way in terms of just uh, story plotting to, to have that, that beat and have that moment where they can kind of hash things out. Uh, and again, it's just a fun moment for Defoe. It, it really is one of the moments where you're like, damn, he's good in this movie. There's like just small body language stuff, like the way he goes and leans over next to Spider-Man, like they're just chatting at a bar and he like mm-hmm. pats him on the shoulder. It's like great little stuff like that, but also has great lines like, in spite of everything, they will hate you. Um, and again, it, it sets up very nicely later in the film, Peter realizing that. And uh, again, later in the trilogy, even when we get to Spider-Man 3, this has to be about doing things because they're the right thing to do, not because people pat you on the back for it. Right. Otherwise, you're no better than anybody else. You're no better than the bad guys. Um, and that's that's kind of an interesting theme that gets uh, dropped very early in this trilogy and, and does eventually come to fruition uh, by the time we get to the end. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that. My first selection, I do love in all superhero narratives that moment of realization of powers. 
Like I just I love I love all and there are several little sort of moments where he's realizing bits and pieces of how he can put this together. But the fight scene with Flash guys, it's good. The, I mean that that especially that punch in which he punches ducks and is so fast he's able to look back at him and look back and make a double take like wow I'm moving really fast and he can't touch me. That is amazing. And uh, so I'm I'm a big fan of that fight scene. And uh, just because it's it, it's just fun because he's entirely outmatched and overclassed, and Peter really doesn't quite know what to do with it until he finally just puts one into him, you know, and puts him across the floor. Jimmy Janello, uh, at an early part here, he's really good as Flash Thompson. Yeah, he he's is. he's having a great time being terrible, and uh, he's nails it. I wouldn't want to fight me neither. That's a good line. <laughs> Oh, oh man, and it's yeah, and uh, then it just goes in a very, very different kind of way. So that's my first selection. Number next, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you? Uh, this is another small moment, but it's a great moment. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of forget that Tobey Maguire was a legit actor before you know doing this. I mean, you got Cider House Rules, and you got Seabiscuit. I mean, he's doing other stuff. He's a really solid actor. Uh, and there's a moment in two where uh, he goes to Aunt May. And he makes this confession that, you know, he wasn't at the mm. library studying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have this little back and forth, you know. And then there's a lot of heart in that moment. And and we kind of get to see. And Rosemary Harris, she's just killing She's it. great. She's great as Aunt May. Uh, and, and she, thankfully, she gets a lot to do uh, over the course of these films, which is nice. Especially in two. Yeah. Uh, and that Aunt May, I mean, if you're familiar with the the character of Spider-Man, you know how important Aunt May is to Spider-Man. Like, she drives so much of what Peter Parker does. You know, he doesn't want to, you know, the whole reason he he battles with the responsibility of being Spider-Man and his identity is he doesn't want anything to happen to Aunt May or, you know, or MJ even. But uh, Aunt May is, you know, it's his mother, you know, and, and that moment is so heartbreaking when she realizes, you know, he, you know, in, in a sense was almost responsible, you know, the events that he had led to this, you know, the taking of Ben and they both play it so well, but we really get to see McGuire act, uh, you know, it's not really the melodrama thing. It's not the over the top camp. It's a really, uh, raw emotional, uh, performance from him in that moment. And I think it just speaks volumes, uh, in, in this kind of very quiet place in the film. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number next pick? Uh, My number next pick is actually another small moment between Aunt May and Peter. It's actually a little bit later in the movie after he has declared, I am Spider-Man no more, which is a grammatically weird thing to say. Uh, (laughs) But he goes over to Aunt May's house and realizes she's packing. She didn't tell him she was packing. He's kind of been... uh, off the radar lately and realizes that he's been missing out on what's happening in people's lives. Uh, And he's like, wait, you're moving? She's like, yeah, I'm moving. Um, And then there's this little neighborhood kid. I think Henry is the character's name. And uh, he's like, oh, hey, hey, Peter, you take pictures of Spider-Man, right? When's he coming back? And he's like, oh, I don't know if he's going to come back. And he leaves. And and May, in a moment that I think is supposed to tell us that Aunt May suspects Peter is Spider-Man, although um, it never becomes clear throughout these films if she's pieced it together or not. Uh, but uh, it's that same small moment. It's kind of the culmination of that scene Arthur was just talking about, that moment of forgiveness where she tells Peter, it's like, it's okay, I still love you. And in this next scene, she's reminding him of, look, here's what you have to do with that forgiveness I've given you. You have to remember that there is a hero in everyone because kids like Henry need somebody that they can look up to and aspire to be somebody that encourages us to dig a little bit deeper and go a little bit longer and try to be a little bit better. Um, it's a it's a beautiful scene. It's a scene that um, I was surprised to find still makes me cry to this day. Um, I, I always would name check it on uh, People's History back when we did those interviews as one of the scenes that always makes me cry when people would ask me um, if they were having trouble coming up with their own answer. That was the one I always dropped. I was surprised that it does, in fact, still make me cry. And it just it really works. Uh, that moment, that quiet moment, again, talking about Tobey Maguire being a real actor, has nothing to do but react in that scene and does so so quietly and so precisely like it's just like a little bit of like his eyes are just welling up a little bit you see uh this like hint of sadness and inspiration in his eyes it's i think really really powerful um and then again i'm gonna cheat a little bit and say the the scene that that kind of directly uh motivates and pushes forward is the train scene 
Um, now, again, that is probably the action highlight of this entire trilogy is Doc Ock and Spider-Man fighting on top of that building and then on the train. Um, but it culminates in the moment of real heroism from uh, from Peter. And honestly, in a way that he doesn't really get throughout the rest of the movies. I mean, um, it, it is the big hero moment for the trilogy. Uh, there are times when he saves other people, um, but it's always predicated on... Um, you know, intentional acts by the bad guys. Um, well, this is an intentional act by the bad guy. Um, it's always small things. Yeah, they, they show him saving people a lot, which I think we'll talk about in analysis is a thing that I really enjoy about these movies. But it is just highlighting the selfless act of heroism to the point where it almost kills him. Um, and you have this great moment of people appreciating um, him and his sacrifice. And it's it's a nice moment that he doesn't get to see because he's unconscious. Um, and, again, I think those two moments are so tightly tied together that I, I had to mention them both. But, uh, again, and that's, that's the strength of these movies, right? There's a small, beautiful dialogue scene that leads us into a pretty bombastic action set piece. And my next pick is a bombastic action set piece, and it is the first Doc Ock fight uh, with Spider-Man on the building. Uh, when, with Aunt May in tow. That one's good. Yeah. Oh, man. And I just I love the way um, they're able to sort of uh, stitch together, obviously, some real-life photography of the building, uh, CGI characters, occasionally inserts of uh, real-life characters, and uh, choreograph this fight scene in which falling is part of the fighting, that gravity plays into it. It's, it, I mean, and, and the way... Those tentacles look so good, they by do, the way. Those tentacles yeah, they do. Look great. So they're very, very excellent sort of uh, prop-slash-CGI design character design, I guess you'd have to almost say, uh, for those tentacles. Oh, they do give them a lot of personality. And there's a lot of athleticism to the way um, Peter Parker, Spider-Man moves, in that it, it, it's, um, I mean, he's obviously a superhuman, uh, superhero doing things that a person couldn't, but it's the sort of thing a human being could conceivably do. And there's an athleticism to the way in which they sort of choreograph uh, Peter Parker there, uh, Spider-Man there. And I, I really, really just love uh, that particular fight scene. And it's, again, just use of gravity, balletic movement, uh, and uh, just the sort of uh, the physicality of, of that. Sometimes CGI fight scenes uh, seem pretty insubstantial, and uh, that's one in particular that I think is very, very solid. Well, and I think part of what works so well about it, other than the advancement in technology from one to two, is um, just they, they've kind of figured out a little bit more because there's not a lot of like really kind of high-flying crazy stuff in the first one. Mm -mm. But they really, they really throw uh, ideas and money at these fight scenes uh, between him and Otto Octavius. And you're right, it just... Even though there are moments where you're like, well, this is clearly from coming from inside of a computer, they find a way to make it dramatically interesting and visually interesting. And you're, you're absolutely right. That's the strength of, of all of those scenes in two is the ways in which Raimi and company find a way to make CGI photography dramatically and photographically interesting, which is really impressive, honestly, because, there's, I mean, so many movies uh, that we've seen where it's not interesting at all. I mean, God, if you want to cut to... Ten years later with Man of Steel, there's a whole lot of CGI photography in that movie that's not nearly as interesting as some of the stuff we got here. So, great pick, Dustin. Arthur, where, where are you at? Where, where are we coming up now, buddy? Uh, this is a complete opposite of a quiet moment. This is the jazz club sequence yes. in Spider-Man 3. Oh, oh, so it's good. And it, it is the complete culmination of this tonal framework that Raimi has built. There's a bit of camp in all these films, and three is the culmination of that. And, and it makes sense for Peter Parker to do this where he's at. He has become so spite-filled because of the suit and just his ego. You know, he doesn't need MJ anymore, right? And so he's going to go there and rub it in her face. I was just really amazed that spiders had great piano skills. I, I just hey, when you got know. eight hands, you can hit all those notes, Boom. baby. Probably true, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just the complete absurdity of this appearing in this film, you know, and so many people panned it because of that when it first came oh, out. I hated it. Uh, but there's something charming about, A, he starts playing jazz piano. It's fun. And then he gets up and does a whole dance number across the room, and... It is a blast. Well, it's also immediately preceded by a, a sequence of him walking down the street shooting handguns at, peop <laughs> uh, at, not people, at women. He is enjoying – look, the culmination of that is so great, Arthur, because, yeah, you've, you've got these scenes of him walking around realizing women find him super attractive when he's wearing this black suit and then leaning way too into it and being like, hey, hey, 
hey, <laughs> just like what's upping every woman he passes, and, yeah. the, and the double takes turned it. Ugh. Yeah, and then it culminates in it just becoming so gross and toxic, and yet. You know, kind of cool because there's a lot of fun athleticism in there. Yeah. And it's also completely vile and gross. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think audiences were not prepared for Peter Parker, one, being that mean and that shitty and also that goofy at the same time. Yeah, yeah it is it is buck wild. Um, and I think if the film itself, you mentioned this earlier, it's kind of tonally conflicted. And I think if the film had been able to maintain that kind of campier tone, it would work a lot better, uh, you know, in, in – in, comparison to the whole film itself but i i think as a moment it's it's brilliant i think it's this a real shot in the arm for what that film needed you know what the film needs uh because it is so kind of bogged down in its narrative that it, it needs a kind of burst of energy about that point in the film so I, I appreciate what he's doing there. Awesome, awesome. I like that pick a lot, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your number last pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, uh, I'm actually going to go with one of my honorable mentions because the Jazz Club was one of mine. So I'll, I'll pull one of my honorable mentions out, and it is, um, again, from 3. There's a lot of moments in 3 that I think are really great. Um, there's the amazing special effect of the birth of Sandman, but I, I want to go ahead and go with the smaller moment that's also tied to MJ and Peter's relationship. And it's his attempted proposal at the the French restaurant featuring Bruce Campbell, who is great as the maitre d'. But I I think it is the culmination of Raimi taking time to let this relationship breathe because it's here uh, where Peter, without already succumbing to the temptations of his badass new toy, uh, the the black suit, um, has already been not only a shitty superhero, but a really shitty boyfriend. Uh, he, uh, kissed this woman on stage, uh, doing a thing that was special to him and Mary Jane. Um, by the way, a thing that's special to him and Mary Jane that takes place immediately after she's almost assaulted. Uh, and we'll talk about that more in analysis. Cause yeah, holy shit, cause that's gross. Oh, it's bad. It's really nasty. And you don't realize how gross it is when you're 11. It just seems cool. It's not cool. No. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, and she not only realizes did he kiss this this woman on front of the stage, it's a person he knows. It's a person he knows that he has, like, a rapport with yeah. that he hasn't told her about. Mm-hmm. That he actively has concealed this person from her. And he does not understand at all what he has done wrong. And I think the film really effectively brings real emotion and pathos and real relationships to this film it it is written so well and again talking about tone there is this entire uh silliness of bruce campbell thinking he's being summoned to bring the glasses of champagne out um your mileage may vary on whether or not that works for you while this very serious scene is happening oh i I get a lot of no i think it works i think it's a hoot yeah but again kirsten dunst really uh underserved throughout these films Never phones it in, is always doing very, very high-level work um, in, again, basically explaining to him why he's a bad boyfriend. She's like, you do not understand why my feelings are hurt? How can you not possibly understand? And again, I think it's great to have Peter, who has been this really kind of sensitive and caring guy throughout, but has also had this tinge of... um, the, The unrequited love has never gone gross before until they do the love is reciprocated when that love is reciprocated he immediately takes it for granted in a way that's really interesting especially yeah. in this scene and i i think um you know as we have talked throughout this episode we've talked about what works about these films is sam raimi investing in these relationships in these small moments um and, and it's a great moment it's a, it's unfortunate that there's not another scene after this that has that much weight uh, because it makes their reconciliation later in the film feel kind of trite and forced because yeah. we don't have a scene as good as their breakup um, yeah. for the rest of the movie between the two of them. Uh, but it's it's a really incredible scene, I think, because it does find a way to, to draw, I, I think, a pretty relatable uh, scenario into the film. I, I think anybody who's been in a relationship has had a moment where they did something pretty fucked up and didn't understand why yep. what they did was wrong yeah. until it was explained to them, and even then had to think about it yeah. for a while. I, look, I'm talking about myself yep. here. I've done that. Yep. Uh, I've done some stuff where I was like, well, "What did I do? I don't understand." Oh, yep. I was, I was, I was an asshole. That was uh, the worst. That's always the worst feeling. I did the worst thing. Oh, I'm an idiot. Yeah. How did I not realize how that would hurt somebody else's feelings? Because I was only thinking about my own. Mm-hmm. And again, that's part of why the small moment works is it sets up that Peter is only thinking about himself at this point in his life. Um, 
and again, I, I think it's a great small moment and is one of the highlights of Spider-Man 3 and part of why that film is unfairly maligned. Very, very good. Um, my number last pick is, I think, the cornerstone of the entire trilogy. Okay. It is the Uncle Ben conversation in the car. With great power comes great responsibility. Um, I think uh, the way in which it's used in the service of some ideological ideas that are maybe not so awesome, we'll get to that. But I do think the sentiment itself is uh, very well placed. And I do think uh, the act – oh, gosh – Cliff Robertson. Cliff Robertson's uh, uh, performance is just so solid. Um, I think Tobey Maguire is doing a great sort of indignant teenager in that moment. I, I think the dynamics of it are just too phenomenal. And it continues to be, again, just sort of a key moment in the film. But, yeah, for me, that's – because it is so key to the narrative structure and the sort of ethical structure that uh, I think Raimi's trying to put forward. Again, I think it's put in the service of some other ideological constraints that are sort of outside of Raimi's control. We'll get to more of that later, I think. But, um, yeah, that moment is just it's, – it's, it's so important. And uh, instead of it just being the sort of uh, – you know, ham-fisted moment where we've got some ideology, we've got this sort of slogan uh, sort of moment. It's done in this tenderness uh, yeah. that uh, of this this man trying to be a father to uh, someone who's not his son, and uh, there, there's a real power to that. Yeah. And oh, yeah. uh, I mean, and it always that, that that scene has always moved me and has moved me again. It's know. it's absolutely you're absolutely right. And again, I think the indignance of uh, Tobey Maguire in that scene really works too. Yeah, so the, true. I, yeah, he's just not hearing it. Yeah, I, I've got a 14-year-old son. I know what that conversation's like. <laughs> well, I think you're right about it being a cornerstone, though, because he um, Ben even says these are the years where a, a man becomes a person he's going to be for the rest of his life. And I, I think, obviously, not knowing where two other films after this would go, I think it does really set up very well that these are going to be these three films are going to be about uh, a teenager becoming a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the fact that it's you know a 26 year old I, I i don't know how old he was yeah. when they made these movies uh is a little silly but they do a good job of laying out the moral and narrative arc of three films right there in that scene absolutely absolutely so um it's a moment i really like so dear listener there's those are our three uh picks per person any, any quick honorable mentions before we move on because uh, i think i was surprised how many contenders i had uh there, I, I wrote down a lot of moments and was kind of surprised just how many there ended up being. Maybe you guys like this movie a lot more than I did. I think it's good. I think it's good moments. Yeah, I, I think it has great moments. I mean, I don't know that the sum is better than the parts of the whole, but yeah. I think one that speaks to me and I haven't talked about it yet, because but I, I, you know, spoiler if you haven't seen Spider Man Three, um, <laughs> but uh, the moment when Harry and Peter have the fight in Three, and they break through the barrier and they're in the Goblin closet, you know. And Peter throws that bomb into Harry's face. Calling back when he gets hit in the face in the first movie. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it is such a pitch-perfect moment to let us know where Peter is emotionally and in his head. Mm. That he would do this to his, you know, because earlier he doesn't want to fight Harry earlier in the film. When they have that first fight, is, you know, he's the new goblin. He's chasing him through the alleyways or whatever. They're trying to fight. Peter's not wanting to do it, right? And he's come to this point where... He is willing to blow his, you know, his former best friend up despite their problems. You know, I, I think it's just a great character moment of, to see where he's come to insofar as, you know, being affected by the symbiote. I think uh, in a similar kind of way, there is an honorable mention for me in part three when um, Peter just uh, is using poor Ursula. That that moment where he's on. <laughs> Do you the have phone. any cookies with nuts in them? Oh, oh, can you God. make me some cookies can, with can, nuts? Uh, th- I mean, that is like that sort of just. Uh, again, just perfect uh, depiction of I don't really care about you at all, and I'm yeah. absolutely just using you. And it is uh, utterly oblivious to the extent. Yeah. Now, it, it's definitely extre- extreme. Yeah. It's definitely you know um, bombastic the way it's going about. But uh, I do love – this is how far gone Peter Parker has gone yeah. because this is the least sensitive a person could be. Clearly, this person has got a huge crush on him, and he's like, yeah, I'm just going to take advantage of this. Yeah, it's, and, it's – yeah, it's 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 very icky. Well, and again, both of these scenes, I mean, lead into the jazz club scene, which ends with him uh, hurting Mary Jane. It's, yeah. it's unclear, by the way, they've cut if he hit her while he was fighting the bouncers or if he just shoved her. But, yeah, yeah. he assaults not only his partner but also his best friend in the span of, like, a week. Yeah. Um, it's it's some gnarly stuff. You're absolutely right. And I think you're, you, you're both right in mentioning that the film does a good job of showing how far gone he is. 
the only honorable mention I want to mention uh, before we move on is the elevator ride with Hal Sparks in Spider-Man 2 uh, when his powers first go on the Fritz early yeah. in the movie. Uh, yeah. And they're riding on the elevator, and he just thinks he's some guy in cosplay. And Peter getting to open up to a stranger and talk about how uncomfortable it is to be a superhero is really funny. That's the most Spider-Man moment of this film. And the entire of trilogy. The trilogy. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing. We talked about this off-air, and um, this, this episode's going to go on forever, I know. That's right. Um, but we're covering three films, so it's okay. The, the thing we kind of mentioned off-air is I think this is a... I think Sam Raimi gets Peter Parker. I don't think him or the writers, you know, I don't know really where that blame falls. I don't know if the writers get Spider-Man. And how being in that suit affects Peter and how yeah. how it makes him feel. Yeah. Know? Anybody familiar with Spider-Man, Spider-Man's, he's quick-witted, he's sarcastic, he's a smart aleck, right? And there's a lot of humor to him. And, you know, no matter the odds, he's going to make a joke to, to try and, you know, either make his enemy mad for whatever, you know, he's going to antagonize him in some way. And, and anytime Peter Parker is in the suit in this trilogy, we never really get those moments. He's always either just swinging through the city or fighting somebody. We never get to see that, that Spider-Man that we're familiar with from the comics or the cartoons. And I think that moment is the most Spider-Man. It's the perfect balance of, you know, Peter Parker, spider you know, it rides up in the crotch sometimes. Yeah. And so I appreciate that moment. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, that's the only honorable mention I wanted to throw out there before we uh, we call it a day. That's a good one. I like that. I like that too. Maybe I like more moments in this movie than I thought. A lot of these good, movies than I thought. Lots of good moments, just they're not always cohesive. The more we talk, I, I, I think two is the best. I, I think just without a doubt, it's the most cohesive. It's the strongest emotional, you know, whatever. But I think three is the most interesting. Oh, three is far and away thematically the most interesting of all of them. Absolutely. Yeah. I would even go as far as to say Spider-Man 3 is one of the most thematically interesting superhero movies of the last 15 years. Huh. Because it's such a fucking weird kettle of fish. Yeah. Well, uh, And it doesn't uh, adhere to a 18-strong form formula of right films. New. Well, all of that makes me very, very excited for us to get down to business. Actually, just kidding, dear listener. Um, this uh, conversation has um, been so fruitful that we are actually doing, for the first time ever, a two-parter episode um, dealing with the Spider-Man trilogy. That's right. We, Call us last podcast on the left because we cannot get through an entire episode in one sitting. And it's only fitting that we uh, we tackle the trilogy with a multi-part uh, episode. I think so. So I don't think we'll go three episodes, though. No. Nah. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, actually, part three will just be Elsa's or Instead's. That, 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 that's, that's all part three will be. So we're going to come back with our Elsa's and Instead's and also our analysis, which is going to be really in-depth because uh, we've got three films. and yeah. uh, But we're really going to – we're not going to – we're not going to give the surface level – on just the three films and just sort of a reading. We're really going to go into it. And uh, so, and we're going to talk about this in a metatextual sense with regard to other films, uh, the other stuff that Raimi's done, the other Spider-Man oeuvre. And also, we're going to get really, really theoretical with this stuff. And so, uh, uh, Lacan and Freud and Marx and uh, Naomi Wolf and others. Naomi Watts. And Naomi Watts um, are, are going to rear their heads. Um, uh, why we're we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk about incels. Uh, and toxic masculinity. Peter Parker is very close to being an incel. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, Green Goblin, false cell. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're and we're going to talk a lot about nine eleven and the war and uh, man it's going to be uh, it's going to be intense and so uh, we're very very excited to be bringing that to you but we're going to bring it to you in a three parter so uh, two parter two parter <laughs> calm down calm, calm down calm down Raymond it's not a trilogy what did I say you I said meant, three I meant calm down I meant, Michael Stahlberg man I just yeah. hey pump pump your brakes there Kevin Feige hey we're going to do one more episode. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more. <laughs> Just one more. We're going to finish this out, and that's it. And that is no more show. <laughs> so next week, uh, tune in as we talk We'll reboot about... in about two years uh, with the uh, retelling of our origin story. It's... <laughs> when we all go back to school. If we, if we, yeah, if we reboot our origin story... Uh, I want to not go to college. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no more debt. I, yeah. I, well, uh, the joke is always in my family that I always am in college, and I am going to be in college forever. And they're like, oh, you're graduating in two years, so what degree are you doing next? He's Uncle Ben. You're Peter Parker. Oh, fuck, of course. I Duh. Am, man, yeah. You're going to die I, next week. Next well, week. <laughs> we want to bring in the MCU. I guess he could be Tony. With great podcasting no, comes much, great responsibility. You're too much of a working class hero. I'm happy Hogan. <gasps> Gasp. <laughs> <laughs> you sure shit are because you find me unbearable. <laughs>
<laughs> Quit texting me, Dalton. <laughs> Quit texting me. We don't need your help on the podcast this it, week. It's funny you say that because you and me really go down a wormhole of text conversations that Dustin just barely acknowledges. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working, man. <laughs> I'm working, too. I just refuse to not be on my phone all the time. I've always logged right the fuck in. I always just wonder because I'll, uh, you know, especially people, on Facebook because you can see, you know, yeah. when people have read. So we'll have like an eight-hour conversation about something and then Dustin just like skips to the bottom two Sounds days later. Sounds good because yeah. I'm too old to start learning how to use computers (laughs) (laughs) or phones yep uh so well anyway dear listener uh we're really i mean this is going to be great uh it really really is um we're really excited to be doing this uh so next week it's going to be more of the same uh regarding the spider-man you keep watching we'll keep talking i guarantee it and we'll see you all next time Thank you for tuning into the Good Trash Genrecast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things Good Trash, tune on over to uh, www.goodtrashmedia.com, where you can find all that Good Trash good stuff for your life. Our intro music is uh, an original piece by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers, and our outro piece is, as it should be, the Spider-Man theme song, covered by the Ramones. In the of the night, I'm the of the crime, like a stream.